Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Sarah and I actually used to live in New Orleans. And uh, they have this whole thing, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Mardi Gras. Now, I know when I say that, your mind might immediately go to debauchery and chaos and whatnot. But uh, it's actually like a fascinating history to the whole thing. So, there's these things called crews, and it's spelled just the exact opposite of how you would assume the word crew should be spelled. But uh, basically, uh, historically, they were sort of like rich old white dudes getting together. And uh, they would, instead of it being like a country club or something like that, where they play golf and sit in steam baths or whatever, uh, instead they would actually hop on these big colorful floats behind tractors and be pulled around the city wearing colorful masks and throwing out, you know, little trash, little trinkets to people that were standing by. It was just a strange sort of event already. But one of my favorite crews of all time is called Zulu. And what's really fascinating about Zulu as a crew is that they didn't even call themselves a crew. In fact, their official title was the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club. And it was one of the first, if not the first, African-American crew to be present in New Orleans. And basically, a bunch of people got together and uh, they started hanging out together and basically created this Social Aid and Pleasure Club. Now, part of it looks exactly like every other crew, right? Right? They go, they set up a big parade, they float through downtown, it's really amazing, really, uh, some of the artwork on it is just truly fantastic. They throw out these coconuts, uh, which yes, as you're imagining, are exceptionally dangerous as things to throw to a crowd of revelers, but it's also sort of awesome. Nobody, nobody looks away for the full two hours just for threat of that happening, right? But what else is really great is they call themselves a social aid and pleasure club because back at their creation, They weren't just all about, you know, having fun, having a good time, throwing a parade. They were also about serving their community. And so uh, they became sort of like their own sort of insurance agency, right? So you would sort of chip in, and then if something happened to you, you needed help covering bills or something like that, the the Social Aid and Pleasure Club would sort of be there to stand up for you when they needed it or when you needed it. They would also serve their community. They'd pour money right back into the local community. And they became this organization that was centered around two things. One was uh, pleasure. They like to have a lot of fun. They like to hang out together. They like to throw big parties. And social aid. That makes it exceptionally unique. Because here you have this organization, this crew that is built on loving each other, of being focused on having a good time and enjoying one another's company. But then that enjoyment actually turns into something that benefits the world around them. As in, there are people that are in New Orleans, historically and today, who have been benefited by the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, even without having to be a part of it, even without being in it themselves. To me, this is one of the clearest pictures of the church that I can think of, or at least what the church is supposed to be. And the reason is because at its very beginning, the church was centered on being about loving each other, loving themselves, and loving the world around them. It's community and community service. It's loving each other and loving everyone else. It's experiencing Jesus together and showing Jesus to the world. Here's what it looked like in the early church. It says in verse 45, And they were 
selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, in case you're wondering, does that just mean they were sharing their proceeds among each other? I do think it sort of primarily means that, but it's interesting that it goes in to say, as any had need their proceeds to all. But then also in verse 47, it says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, which assumedly means they're talking not just about this little church, not just this little nucleus of a body, but actually all the people that were surrounding, even the people that were not a part of them. The church at its heart was designed to be something that positively benefited the world around it. And that actually goes all the way back from sort of the, uh, the thing that predated the church, which was the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, the idea, the sort of goal, and, and I think true Israel, this actually happened with, true uh, followers of God, this actually happened with, was for the nation of Israel to transition right into followers of Jesus. That's why Jesus came as a Jewish person. That's why Jesus came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, so that God's chosen people could continue to follow after after God by now following after his son and sort of see the fruition of everything that happened in the Old Testament. All of this stuff was building to this one point and it was found and met in Jesus and he was sort of the fulfillment of everything that had happened before and it all started like this. In Genesis 12 it says this, God is speaking to Abraham, he says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was all the way back. God wasn't blessing just one family so that they could be unto themselves. He wasn't blessing one family so that they could rule it over all the other families in the world. He was blessing this one family so that they might be a blessing to the world. It says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, back to the church in Acts. They were in an immediate reaction to the resurrection story that they had just heard. In fact, it had unfolded before many of their eyes. They had a tangible and direct connection to Jesus' death on the cross. It had just happened, right? And they knew that they were blessed. They knew that his death on the cross was actually for their sins, for uh, the things that they had done wrong. Jesus had to die on the cross and then came back to life and the church was born from that. So it was in the very forefront of their minds that they had been given a gift they could have never earned. In fact, they were blessed beyond their wildest imagination that the Son of God would come down and take the punishment that they they deserved and because of that they might be blessed with eternal life. Jesus comes in, he says, "You were in opposition to God. You were working against his will. You were uh, working for yourself and in spite of that, I am going to bless you here on earth and into eternity." And so following that same Abrahamic blessing that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12, in reaction to that, this new church, in receiving so great, so profound a blessing, responds by turning around and loving the people around them. It was a direct sense of we have been blessed so greatly that now it is our responsibility to bless others. So that's what they did. 
And from the very birth of the church, and really when the church is doing well and throughout all of history, it is known as an organization that is not just inwardly focused, that is not just caring about itself, that is not just interested in what it is doing, but is actually a blessing to the world around it. This is at the very heart of who we ought to be as Christians, as who we ought to be as the church. And this is what it means to be the hands of God. That Jesus uh, builds and births the church by his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, and that it immediately they become his people who are doing his will on earth. They become his people who are now responsible for doing what he has called them to do, which is looking out for the least of these, which is uh, thinking of others more highly than yourself, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. These are the things that Jesus has called us to do. And so we then are left behind as the people, as his hands, his emissaries to the world that so desperately needs it. And all of that comes back to the fact that he has blessed us so greatly so that we might be a blessing to others. So, what are the new tools for the church? What does this look like in the year 2020 and beyond? I think they have three this week. So first is kingdom thinking. Kingdom thinking. Jesus spoke more about the kingdom of God than almost anything else. And in fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, when Jesus talks about the good news uh, and is bringing up like, I am coming to tell the world something, he is very often associating that with the coming of the kingdom of God. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of that, you now have the ability to repent and believe and be saved. And that kingdom of God was sort of brought into fruition with Jesus' life, but we also don't fully see it until the end of time when he comes back again. And so what we're left with is sort of the foundation of how we can think of ourselves as hands in the world. You see, it's our salvation that has made us able, able to actually live in and enjoy this kingdom of God. That one day when it is brought to completion because of Jesus' death on the cross and because we are the church, he is going to allow us to be there with him. So the time then that we're left here, the sort of in-between of after we start following Jesus but before we are fully living in the kingdom, that time ought to be spent thinking and working and dreaming towards this future kingdom. In fact, your job as a follower of Jesus here on earth is to be working towards to seeing this kingdom come to life around you to transforming your mind and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in transforming everything you are so that you might be fit and ready to be a kingdom person. And what that also means is fighting for, working for, seeking this kingdom, coming out and being alive and real in the world around you. Very simply, you can think of it like this. Our job as Christians in blessing the world around us is seeking to make our world look more like heaven, look more like the kingdom of God, that you are placed in your specific areas of influence so that you might be able to make your little pocket of the world look more like heaven. One of the ways that I think that we do this is actually the second tool, and that's through gospel justice. 
gospel justice. Now, uh, the church lives out fully its call to be the hands of Jesus on earth when it is engaged in creating and fostering justice in the world. Micah 6.8 says it this way, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here the prophet Micah is speaking to the people of Israel and he is telling them exactly what it looks like to follow God. This is what God requires of us as human beings, as his creation, as followers of him, that we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. And I think that gospel justice is the way to move forward. And I'm differentiating that here from social justice. Now, it's going to get a little bit sticky because this is one of those terms that could mean any number of things to any number of people. It's kind of difficult to uh, to really nail down exactly what social justice means. Uh, a quick Google search would say that it is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privilege within a society. Now, that's the technical term. But it seems like more often it's sort of jumping on whatever society says is cool to get behind right now, right? Like sometimes social justice means like sort of social media justice even, that you're just sort of jumping on some sort of bandwagon, this is what's important right now, so I'm going to, you know, voice my support. And believe me, I am not at all against any of that. But I think... uh, We can't let that be our only litmus for whether or not we are actually doing justice in the world, for whether or not we are actually being the hands of Jesus, fighting for justice, living out that Micah 6-8 call. In fact, someone was described to me recently as sort of like an odd thing. It says, uh, it was surprising because this person was all about, you know, this one social justice topic, but then didn't really care about this other one. And the person that was talking about them was like, Man, how weird is that? Do they really even care about it at all? But yet these movements were radically different. They weren't even, like, connected at all. And I think that speaks to the fact that social justice can very often just be a big sort of momentum movement thing that we sort of get behind and jump on because even though it seems like you're sacrificing, even though it seems like you're being countercultural, it's actually a group of people all sort of being countercultural together. I mean... If you really have a question about that, you can look at all of the companies that we know their only goal is to make money. Their only goal is to actually sort of sell you their product. And they found that the best way to do that is to be able to, you know, put a flag up on their social media feed or, you know, put out a statement about Black Lives Matter or something like that. And we all know that it's hollow, that it's not real. And what's crazy, too, is just the way in which these movements come and go so quickly. One week we're all about this, and then the next week it's like something else has risen to importance. And there's no real litmus, no real deciding factor as to what's important and what is not. On top of that, we've created this court of public opinion where we're constantly passing judgment without all of the facts, where we're getting ready to sort of, you know, execute our sentences on the perpetrators or anyone who disagrees with us, and it becomes this whole big mess. Instead, what I am suggesting is that we ought to be about gospel justice. The way that Jesus leads us to become champions of this gospel justice, it stands out against the world's justice as one which balances justice and grace. 
I think this is going to be the move for Christians moving forward. It fully represents the God that we follow and that He too is completely fully just and completely full of grace. And so we as Christians living out this gospel justice means that, you know, it's going to look a little bit different from the world's justice. First, it is going to be just in the sense that it is following the only right and just ruler, which is God. But it is also going to be filled with that same grace that He is so freely given to each of us. Hallmarks of gospel justice would look something like this. They would be filled with action on behalf of others. They would also be filled with grace on behalf of ourselves. And by that I mean that we ought to stand up and act for people that can't act for themselves, but we also, on behalf of ourselves, ought to give grace to people that harm us. And I think another hallmark will that it be filled with restorative justice and rehabilitation over retribution. Our punishment system cannot be based on just seeking revenge on people that have done wrong, on giving them retribution, but it can actually have a gospel outlook which looks forward to the ways in which every single human being is not too far gone. That there's nothing that you can do that can separate you from the grace of God. And so we ought to be able to find ways to look towards a future where a person is actually restored. Where because God has forgiven us of so much, we ought to have the ability to think through forgiving everyone for anything that they might possibly do. And looking to find the humanity inside each and every one of us and the potential for restoration there. And I think as a part of that, that means that we ought to look at the world as recognizing that all of us, you, me, that person that just committed the most heinous thing that we are all against on social media, whatever it is, we are all sinful and broken human beings. And while there does need to be earthly justice and we do need to pay, you know, we do need to hold people accountable for their actions, we also have to recognize that no single person was ever beyond redemption. And in fact, if you think even about the great things that Jesus had to uh, bear on your behalf, if you think about your own sin, even for the briefest of moments, you walk away not thinking this person is so much worse than I am, but you walk away thinking with, that you have so much gratitude for the God who died for you and for the terrible things that you might have done. So no one, no one is beyond redemption. Those first two tools, I feel like, get us thinking sort of broadly, right? A new sort of sense of justice, a new sort of sense of what it means to live in this world, thinking towards the kingdom that is beyond the final tool is the most simple idea, and I think that's why it is the most important. And it's actually the way in which Jesus told his followers to live out. And that is loving your neighbor as yourself. This is actually what Jesus called you to do. He didn't, you know, speak to the masses. He didn't record this in the Gospels and say like, Hey, go out, solve all the world's problems, cure racism, save the world yourself. You can dream it, you can do it. No. I'm not saying that Jesus is opposed to those things, and I don't think he is. But what I do know is that when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that should speak volumes in guiding us as we think of ourselves as the hands of Jesus here on earth. That we have a specific and concrete calling. And it is 
Not anything huge, not anything glamorous, not anything that's only reserved for super Christians, not anything that, you know, requires a bunch of money or a bunch of learning or a bunch of position or power or anything like that. But it is the simplest, most basic, most human thing to look out at your neighbor. Look at the person who is right next to you. Look at the people who are in your sphere of influence and to love them as you love yourself. Being the hands and feet of Jesus means that we cannot any longer sort of, you know, be all about some sort of social justice and not care about our neighbor who is hurting. It means that we cannot be people that walk past callously pain and brokenness in the people around us. It means that it's not enough for us to just sort of go into our homes and close our curtains on the scary outside world around us. But instead, in the same way that Jesus looked on you, saw you, saw you in need, saw you broken, saw you empty, saw you even pushing away from him and looked on you and loved you. We too ought to be those same people that are looking out on the people around us and loving them. Not because of anything innate in them, not because we think they're going to treat us nice or because it's going to benefit us somehow, but because we have been blessed already. We have been loved by the creator of the universe. And as such, then we ought to be free and ready and able to turn around and love everyone around us. That is our call to be the hands of the church. Go and show that love to the people around you. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.